Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and MD. Welcome back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. As always, hope you guys are having a fantastic Thursday. But how can you not be? Because, like, you're back listening to another episode. It's True Crime Thursday. Give it up. I need I need some special effects, y'all. What y'all think? I need some hand claps in the back. But I wanted to go ahead and get into our crime case for the day just because I don't want to waste any time. I want to get right into it. But please stick with me all the way into the end of the episode because we're going to get into the story of Carly Russell. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about what happened. You should know that by now because I gave you a warning last week. But we're going to talk about the poll results that we posted last week. And then I'm going to tell you what I think. So let's get into our crime case for today. Our story is about Candace Parchment. And I've entitled this case, Beyond the Grave. On April 28th, 2010, for Candace's mother, it starts off as a typical day. And usually I would blow past that fact about a case. But because we are all getting into the mode of going back to school, whether you're a college student or you have children, it's August and like it or not, it's time to go back to school. And this particular day, Candace's mother wakes up and, you know, she goes into her daughter daughter's room and does the usual roll call we do as parents, you know, just announcing that it's time to wake up, giving them enough time to kind of get their bearings. And to Candace's mother's surprise, what was typical or started off as typical is now fumbling into a confusing panic, right? Because usually Candace is, you know, okay, mom, you know, she kind of wrestles with the sheets and her blanket, but this time Candace doesn't do any of that. So her mother, you know, immediately goes to her bed after being at the entry of her doorway and seeing that her daughter is not really saying anything. So maybe she's in a deep sleep. So in her confusing state, she goes over and, you know, touches what she believes is her daughter's shoulder. But that's when she finds out that Candace's body is not underneath the comforter. It is in fact a bunch of pillows. So she panics. She wonders what is going on? So she calls her daughter's cell phone numerous amounts of time, but the phone is going straight to voicemail. And, you know, she does the next best thing. She goes to her daughter's best friend's house. And, 
Yasmin Howard is Candace's best friend. And if anybody would know where she was, it would definitely be Yasmin. So she knocks on her front door and Yasmin comes to the door and she says, hey, like, I don't know where she is. I don't have any text messages from her, but let me text her and, you know, see if she responds. So Candace's mother allows her to do that. And for a brief second, you know, everybody Yasmin and Candace's mother are just hoping that this is a situation that will be solved very quickly. But after Yasmin sends her this, sends Candace a text message, you know, Candace's mother is just kind of in a frenzy. She's wanting to do the next best thing, which is to search the neighborhood. So she tells Yasmin, hey, if you hear anything from her, make sure that you contact me immediately. I'm going out and I'm going to look for her. So that's what she does. She goes around the neighborhood and they lived in Clay, Clayton County, Georgia, in a place called Forest Park. Now, Forest Park was a kind of like a solid middle class neighborhood. I don't want to say that you know, there wasn't a lot of crime there. It wasn't a high crime area. So she goes around and she looks at, you know, the typical spots that Yasmin would hang out at, but to no avail, she doesn't locate her daughter. So she calls the school to see maybe, you know, maybe she went to school, you know, like this is, this is unusual, but probable, right? So she calls the school. The school says, no, she didn't come to school for the day. And Candace is a 15-year-old girl. So everywhere that her mother could think she is, she now isn't. So the next thing that she knows to do is to go to the police. Now, she tells police officers while she's filing this missing persons report that the last time she saw her daughter was a little bit before 1 a.m. Both she and Candace were in the bed together watching a movie and it got kind of late. And that is when Candace announced to her mother that she was just going to go ahead and go back to her bed and just, you know, hang it up and she would see her mother in the morning. So her mother says, okay, and, you know, she turns off the TV and eventually dozes off to sleep herself. So the police take it very seriously, as they should, um, but, you know, they always don't. So it's a plus that they immediately take action. Now, they're trying to determine if Candace is a runaway or is this an abduction so they start at the place where Candace spends most of her time. And of course, that's at school. So they start at Forest Park High School and they begin to interview all the people that she hangs out with. Now, you might be asking, well, why aren't they starting with her best friend, Yasmin Howard? Well, Yasmin, although living in the same area, did not attend the same high school. So it just made sense to start at the high school that Candace attended. Now, she hung out with a guy named Myleek and her boyfriend, Marcus. So 
this is when they start to just take a closer look at these relationships and an especially closer look at her relationship with Marcus because, you know, he's the boyfriend. And if anybody knows anything or if anybody did it, one would think it would be him. Let's get into a little bit about who Candace was. According to her friends and family, she was very energetic. She was a free spirit. And we definitely know that in high school, she was popular. And many friends said that she was such a good listener. And I would like to think that a good friend listens, right? So that was just a part of her core personality traits. And she was a good student, but she was a creative and I'm a creative and just knowing a little bit more about her through my research, she loved to write and she loved to draw. And that was just a part of who she was. So this really was just a glimpse into who Candace was. But I think it's important to note as well that Candace was her mother's only child and her father wasn't involved in her life at all. So it really was Candace and her mom kind of against the world. And you're able to see that through a lot of things that Candace's mother revealed to detectives. But I think you're really able to see how close their relationship was in the sense that right before she goes missing, she's actually laying in the bed with her mother at 1 a.m. watching movies, right? So this is a little bit about Candace and what was going on with her prior to her disappearance. We've already said that detectives have gone to Forest Park High School and they're interviewing Michael and Marcus. And Marcus was her boyfriend. So police are naturally going to want to take a closer look at him. Now, when they interview them, they say to both of the boys, like, what do you know? Where is she? And do you have any information about where she could possibly be? And both boys tell police officers, like, I don't know where she is. You know, she hasn't texted us. Um, she hasn't revealed anything to us that she was going to leave or had plans of leaving. And they both revealed to detectives that um, they were actually at home with their families the night that Candace disappeared. So they have alibis. Detectives asked to see both Michael and Marcus's phone just to see if they're not being as honest as they're putting on. And after looking at their phones, they see that there's no evidence that they aren't revealing things about, you know, where Candace could possibly be. And because they have alibis and they were able to substantiate those alibis, they have to rule them out, at least for the time being, that they have anything or any knowledge about Candace's disappearance. Now, the police then go on to canvas the neighborhood of the Forest Park area. And as I've already stated, this is a middle class, low crime area. And it's a small town. So everybody knows everybody. 
So as they're walking around the neighborhood and asking questions, there are some people who say that they, you know, remember seeing her in the days leading up to her disappearance, but nothing was out of the ordinary or she was at the library with a couple of friends and, you know, they don't remember seeing her on the night of her disappearance. So that information is not useful at all for detectives. And the main question that detectives are trying to figure out is, was she a runaway? Was this typical behavior? Or did something really sinister happen to Candace? Now, as I've already stated, Yasmin, her best friend, went to another school. But Yasmin had some pertinent information for detectives. And I think And I've said, I know for a fact, I've said in previous cases that when you're young and your best friend or, you know, a close friend goes missing, I think naturally you are trying to see if they truly are missing before you give any information up, right? Because it's like, well, what if they're really not missing and I need to hold their confidence, right? And I think this is what Yasmin was doing. But when she realized that, Candace didn't hit her up, didn't text her back, didn't follow up with her after, you know, not being in bed the morning her mom couldn't find her. She was like, you know what? I need to talk to detectives. And that's when she revealed to them that Candace kept secrets and some secrets that she didn't even know herself. Because according to Yasmin, her words, not mine, they had a don't ask, don't tell relationship. So, you know, sometimes Candace would get really secretive and because she didn't share it, well, Yasmin didn't ask about it. And that was the nature of their relationship. So although although they were best friends, there were things that were still kind of, you know, kept compartmentalized for their relationship. Now, she tells police that sometimes, often, Candace would sneak out. She would, you know, make sure that her mom was asleep. Typical teenager behavior, you know, make sure that her mom was asleep and then sneak out of the house. So because police now know that this was not unusual for Candace to sneak out, they then go in her room and try to see, was there a violent struggle? Did somebody maybe take her out? Just trying to like clear out all of the possible scenarios and they don't find any you know signs of violent struggle um the night that she left so they mention this to candace's mother they tell them that you know yasmin her best friend has already you know told us that sometimes she you know sneaks out of the house and candace's mother adamantly tells detectives my daughter would do that you know, and that's not something she would do. I don't believe that she would do that. That's not her. So detectives are still on the hunt to try to investigate what could have happened to her. Well, just two days after Candace has disappeared, her mother receives a text message shortly after 2 a.m. in the morning. And that text is coming from Candace's phone and it says that she's okay and she's in Tennessee. Immediately this 
sets off bells for Candace's mother. She knows this is not Candace because Candace is usually long-winded, very detailed, even in text messages. So for her to send this very short text message after being missing and not coming home for two days with this very simple explanation, she knows it's not her. So Candace's mother does what any mother would do when their child is missing and they know in their gut, this is not their child sending a text message. She goes to detectives and reveals this information. Detectives immediately subpoena Candace's phone records. And we all know here at Murder in the Black that that's not a quick process. That is a protocol going through the proper channels to make sure that you have access and you can have access to those records. But this is when Candace's mother reveals some information that in my opinion, she should have said at the beginning of filing a missing persons report with detectives, because this was pertinent information. She tells detectives that just four months before Candace disappeared, she told her that she was going to Yasmin's house, but indeed she wasn't going to Yasmin's house. So her mother was calling Candace. It got later in the night. She hadn't returned home. Her mother is blowing up her phone. And to no avail, you know, Candace is not picking up the phone. So her mother begins to drive around the neighborhood and she goes to this abandoned house where a lot of teenagers hang out. And Yasmin even says that, you know, they don't really know why they were hanging out there other than it was just like a, a free, you know, no parents are there to check out anything. It was like that type of spot. And so that's why they hung out there. So her mother goes and drives by, but shortly before, you know, pulling up to this abandoned house, she actually calls Yasmin. She's calling her nonstop, right? Because she's blowing up her phone. And Yasmin actually picks up the phone and she's screaming, mom, 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 help me, help me, help me. And hangs up the phone. So her mother is scared. She pulls up to the abandoned house, hoping, praying that her daughter is there. And as soon as she pulls up in front of the house, Candace immediately rushes out of the home and rushes into her mom's car. Now, of course, her mother is trying to figure out what in the world is going on. She needs answers and she needs them immediately. Before she could get any answers, Candace tells her to drive off. And that's what her mother does. You know, she she her, she notices that her daughter is frantic. You know, she just gets this crazy phone call, you know, from her screaming mom into the phone. And when Candace realizes that they're secure and her mom has drove off from the abandoned house, that's when she reveals some information. 
Candace revealed to her mom that she actually was assaulted and attacked by two young men in the abandoned house. She, of course, didn't want to tell her, you know, she didn't want to tell her mom everything. And she didn't want to report this incident because she didn't want people involved in her business. And I don't know that she was even ready to reveal all that happened in the attack. Now, just as her mother is, you know, driving away, safely away from this abandoned house, and Candace is revealing some of the information about what happened, Candace receives a text message. And her mom, of course, asks, what is that about? Who is that from? But she doesn't say anything. All she tells her mother is that she was attacked and one of the guy's name, his name was Jermaine. Now that by itself isn't just a whole lot to go, go by, right? Like his name is Jermaine. There's no last name. That name is a popular name. And so police are really just trying to figure out, okay, now we know that this may have or hold some significance in this story, but how much we don't really know. So they go and they re-interview Michael and Marcus. Now, Michael had no idea about the attack, didn't know what happened or that even something happened four months prior. But Marcus knew something, but he didn't know details. Like he, I, I'm assuming that Candace told him something happened, but she was very elusive like she was with her mom like she didn't tell you know she probably told him i was attacked by two guys but i don't want to go into it that type of thing now after they finished interviewing michael and marcus and not really coming up with anything they received the subpoena phone records and this is when they found out that candace's cell phone never left clayton county or the Forest Park area. So whoever sent that text message obviously was lying. But they kind of have another person that pops up in her cell phone records and they pop up a lot. And this person's name was Trey Jenkins. So they look him up in the system and they find out that he was recently arrested for assault. So he actually might have something to do with it. They go and confront him, and he's in jail at the time, and he claims that he met Candace online. But then she started to ignore him, and their their conversations became more and more infrequent, and eventually she ghosted him, according to him. But upon further looking into his background and his records, they find out that he actually was in jail when she went missing. So the odds of him having anything to do with it are slim to none. So, of course, time flies and months go by and no one hears from Candace. Her mother is desperately putting up flyers in the neighborhood and detectives are hoping that someone comes forward with more information. Seven months go by with nothing. And on November 24th, 2010, scavengers in the area 
are looking for, you know, spare metal, things that they can cash in, bottles, all of those, you know, miscellaneous items that would be found in wooded areas. And that's when they come across a mattress. And they pick up this mattress, you know, thinking that maybe some sheet metal is underneath it or something that is, you know, salvageable is underneath this mattress. But when they flip it over, they find a skull and a skeleton in clothing. This is just 100 yards away from Candace's home. So detectives come out, they gather all the the evidence that is underneath this mattress. And of course, they're hoping that it is not Candace. But they do their due diligence to go and collect DNA from Candace's mother. And that's when they show her the clothes that they've taken pictures of that was underneath this mattress. And before they can even take the DNA to the lab and get the results, they unfortunately find out that it was indeed Candace's clothing. Her mother's able to confirm that 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 was the shirt that she was wearing, that was her jacket, those were her pants that she was wearing when she was last seen. Shocked and devastated does not even begin to cover how her mother felt because the daughter that she was so desperately hoping to find alive is now deceased. And when they did take the DNA evidence and run it through the lab testing, they did confirm that it was indeed Candace. According to the autopsy, the area of the sternum had been stabbed and her death had or was then ruled a homicide. Candace's mother prepares for her funeral and her funeral is held at Living Faith Tabernacle in Forest Park. They had her funeral and they encouraged all guests to wear colors that matched her personality. Friends and family showed up in support of Candace's mother and extended family. But, you know, although the closure of finding out what happened to her or the cause of her death, I should say, was some semblance of closure, it wasn't enough. Detectives and friends and family wanted to find out who was capable of carrying out such a sinister death. Detectives are once again on the hunt, trying to comb through possible perpetrators that could have committed this crime. And that's when they go through a list of recent arrests and they come up with a man by the name of Archimo Hernandez. Now he was in prison for two murders and kidnappings and robberies that took place in the area. And actually, he lived about a mile away from where Candace's body was found. Now, detectives say that Archimo was pretty much very honest about the crimes that he committed. But I say that when you're a murderer and a thief, you know, how honest can you be? I mean, seriously, because 
You didn't just turn yourself in, you got caught. But detectives go and interview Archimo in good faith anyway and see if he was possible of committing this murder. Archimo confesses to all of the murders and kidnappings and robberies that he was arrested for. But when they inquired about Candace, he denied it. He said, I didn't have anything to do with that. That wasn't me. So they're back again at square one, still trying to figure out what was going on. And the community of Forest Park at this time, as you can imagine, they don't want to send their kids out for anything outside of school. And they want to pick them up for that activity because they feel like, we don't know who this monster is in our community. Now, detectives bring Yasmin Howard back in and re-interview her, equipped with some new information. Well, new information to Yasmin, because Michael and Marcus already received information. They tell her about this attack that happened four months prior and they also reveal a name they say hey are you familiar with a guy by the name of Jermaine and she tells them yeah I actually do know somebody by the name of Jermaine his name is Jermaine Robinson I know him from the neighborhood and just like Yasmin Jermaine goes to a different school and it's actually an alternative school. So there was some behavior issues there with him. And one day, Yasmin is talking to a friend and she is talking about Candace being missing and them being unable to find her and, you know, tells her kind of the ending of what happened to Candace and how she was tragically found murdered. And Jermaine just so happens to be walking by and overhears the conversation. That's when he tells Yasmin that, you know, hey, I actually knew Candace and she was such a great person. I can't believe that that happened to her. So, you know, freely, Yasmin gives detectives his name and tells, tells them, like, you can, have his, you can have his name and number because I'm confident. He didn't have anything to do with an attack or anything having to do with Candace's disappearance or her murder. Detectives use this information and contact Jermaine's foster parents, and they agreed to allow detectives to interview Jermaine. Jermaine has an alibi that checks out for the night of the murder, but when they ask about an attack made, upon or about or that happened to I should say to Candace he vehemently denies that he had anything to do with an attack but this is where I want to talk about the importance of writing writing things down that happened to you and the importance of that I know you probably weren't expecting for me to say that, but writing is such a good catharsis, right? It's a good way of 
a good and healthy way of getting out your feelings, saying how you feel, and not necessarily having to tell someone else and to show your heart to somebody else, although that is healthy as well. But can you imagine being sexually assaulted at 15 years old, having a best friend, having a mother who you can confide in, but you're just not ready to say what happened to you? Because maybe, just maybe, you can't even believe yourself that this took place. Well, because Candace was this creative, she loved to write and she loved to draw. It was natural for her to write things down in her diary. And the good thing about Candace's mother, or one of the good things, is that she actually kept everything in its exact same spot in Candace's room because she had all hopes that her daughter would return. But shortly after her death and following her funeral, she finally got the courage to go through Candace's things. And that's when she finds Candace's diary. And this diary revealed every detail that Candace couldn't speak to her mother or her best friend or her boyfriend about the attack that took place just four months before she went missing. After Candace's mother reads her entries in her diary, she realizes she cannot hold on to this information. She has to turn over the information to detectives because ultimately, at the minimum, they would be able to catch the people who were responsible for her sexual attack but maybe there was a motive for murder inside of the pages of her diary. And I want to read a excerpt from her diary concerning what happened on the night that she was attacked. She entitled it A Frightening Experience and she wrote it on January 5th, 2010. It was about after eight o'clock that night I snuck out of my house to go meet two friends. Well, not really friends, but people who I talked to. Both were guys. My stepdad went to pick my mom up from her workplace. So I went walking down the road. It was dark. The stupidest thing I did was forgetting my pepper spray. So I met both guys, Marche and Jermaine. One other reason why I left the house was because I had lost my key to open the house door. Anyways, I searched till I found the key. There's this abandoned house. And that's the end of the excerpt. But there you're able to capture how scared she was, how she sort of blamed herself. But what investigators really found out in this particular excerpt is the name of the second perpetrator. They knew about Jermaine, but they didn't know the name of the second assailant. So they now had his name, Marche. They look him up in their system and they find out that he has a bit of a sketchy past. Not only that, Marche 
lived in the community. I mean, he was from Forest Park. He went to Forest Park High School. And he lived right next door to the crime scene. So they believe that they have something. They interview Marche. And of course, he pretends that he doesn't even really know Candace like that. Like he's seen her in passing, maybe saw her at the library around school a couple of times, but he doesn't really know her. But investigators were convinced he was the second perpetrator. He was definitely involved. So once they tell him, hey, listen, we know you were involved. Once they kind of like talk him into telling the truth or some of the truth, he then says that it was Jermaine. It really was Jermaine who kind of like, you know, constructed the whole scenario of having Candace meet them at the abandoned house. And it was him who came up with the idea to sexually assault her. And, you know, it was all him. And Jermaine threatened him that if he did not engage in this activity, that he would suffer some hardcore consequences. He said that Jermaine had a rake and tried to hit him in the head with it and, and tried to take his phone. And it was just, it was, it was Jermaine. It was Jermaine. Jermaine was the ringleader. And he says that once they saw the car light, which was Candace's mother who pulled up to the abandoned house, it spooked them. And that's when they ran away. But not before sending a text message to Candace. If you remember, I said that once Candace's mother pulled up to the abandoned house, Candace jumped into the car. And once Candace knew that her mom was safe enough or within, in, within enough distance away from the abandoned house, she received a text message. And the text message said this, according to Marche, that if she didn't say anything to anybody about the attack, that they would pay her $100. And in addition to, Marche claims that Jermaine threatened her that if she told anyone that they would kill her grandmother and he had a gun and both Marche saw this gun and so did Jermaine. Equipped with all this information from Marche. Detectives then go and talk to Jermaine. They leverage this information. They say, hey, Jermaine, listen, if you don't tell us what happened, we're going to have to go with Marche's scenario of what happened. That you were the person who, you know, kind of led this attack on Candace and, you know, you raped, you raped her and you threatened Marche and you threatened Candace. And that's when Jermaine said, listen, not if anything, Marche threatened me. I didn't want to be involved in that at all. He threatened me. And as a matter of fact, just a couple of days after the attack, Marche and I were walking down the street and that's when Marche spotted Marcus. Marcus was Candace's boyfriend. Now, there was no interaction that happened between Marcus, 
Jermaine and Marche. But once Marche spotted him, he began to get a little paranoid. And Jermaine could tell that he was a bit off in his mood. And that's when Marche pulled out his cell phone and typed a text message to show Jermaine. And this text message said, should we just kill Candace? Immediately, Jermaine says that he says no. And they go back like it's it's a ping pong contest. They go back equipped with this information and tell Marche. But this time they say that, but Marche is just like, no, you know, Marche get back the lion. He do what he does best. And so they say, okay, you know what? We're going to do a tale as old as time when it comes to investigators. We're going to bluff. We're going to say false information, hoping to get a confession. And they tell Marche that they have his DNA from the crime scene. They have it on Candace. They can put him right there at the crime scene. And Marche immediately breaks down and says, well, you know, on the night of the murder, I do remember this creepy guy following Candace into the woods. But I can't tell you anything that happens after that because I completely blacked out. He says he wakes up in his bed, clothes disheveled and muddied. And he pulls up his sleeves to show investigators that he has these deep scars on his arm. And I mean, y'all, these scars are still visible. And they're almost a year away from the disappearance of Candace at this time. So the fact that they can still see these scars implicate that Candace fought back. She fought for her life. And of course he says, you know, but... I can't remember anything that happened. It was all a dream. I don't think it was even me. Maybe I just dreamed this whole scenario of somebody doing something to her. And police are like, hogwash, sir. We don't believe you. Like, come on. We do not believe you. But because they have like all, they believe they have all that they need to kind of say what ultimately happened to Candace that night. And from what they can tell, what happened was is that some way, somehow, Marche lured her out of the house. And they don't know if they lured her or if he lured her out of the house with the promise of giving her that $100 or if he promised that he wanted to talk to her about the situation. But for whatever reason, she believed him and she came out of the house that night. According to investigators, they don't believe he ever had any intentions of talking to her he wanted to shut her up he wanted to ensure that she would never have the opportunity to tell anybody about the attack that he and Jermaine carried out that's when of course he stabs her in the sternum and then conceals her body with the mattress and Police then charge him with her murder, and he is sentenced to life in prison without parole. Now, police are able to substantiate that Jermaine was not present during the murder because his alibi checked out. 
but they did, however, charge him for sexual assault and he was sentenced to 15 years. One of the quotes taken from Candace's diary was, they will never or she will never forget this and I will make sure that they suffer. And this is the case of Candace Parchment. A little bit of takeaway, just a little bit. This case um, was very disturbing. But also, there is a sense of justice that permeates through this case for me. So I will have my takeaway be that. The fact that Candace was able to write down her feelings concerning the situation and list out everything that happened is brave in my mind. And the reason why I say that is because oftentimes when you experience something so traumatic, um, like sexual assault, you can't tell the people that you trust. And it's not because you don't want them to do something or you don't want them to interfere. It's because you're scared. You're just so scared of things that could come after that, right? And so they had threatened her grandmother. They had threatened her family. And I know I had a lot of questions about why her mom didn't push her a little bit more, didn't you know, immediately take her to the police station and, and, you know, get somebody to go and investigate. I had so many questions about that. But I think what sticks out to me is that ultimately what solved Candace's case was Candace. Her bravery to write down her experience was the motive that investigators needed to ask the hard-hitting questions to go further and to look at these two young men and say you know what no they had something to do with this and her her own words she will never forget it and she ensured from the grave that these two young men suffered and they took accountability for not taking just one thing from her as if sexual assault is not enough. They took that from her and then they turned around and took her life. Because the truth is they probably took her life because her life was forever changed the night that they assaulted her. And for me, that is so sobering, so hard hitting that this happened to this young, beautiful girl that she never will able will be able to experience life. Those precious moments of life that a lot of us take for granted. Those 
moments and memories of your mom waking you up in the morning and you being mad and things we take for granted. Typical things that we just, you know, oh, this is just every day. Oh, you know, things that we don't cherish. So I challenge you from this takeaway. I challenge you to treasure the moments that you think are so typical. Savor every smile that you get from family and friends, even strangers. Cherish the moments that you get to wake your kids up and they're in their beds for school. Love on your people because y'all it's cliche but it is the truth life is fleeting it is but a vapor it's fleeting and you never know what your last moment will be another challenge is if you can't tell somebody You can write it out. I have to give a shout out to my mother. She always encouraged us to write our feelings out. I have journals from six years old, y'all. Six. I'm 35. Okay. You do the math because I ain't. (laughs) But I'm just saying, I feel like. Through her journaling and writing her writing down her experience, it was not only brave, but I think it empowered her. She was getting the confidence that she needed to tell somebody. And like or love what her mom did, she found a safe space within the pages of her journal. And she was getting that confidence. I could, you know, I could just tell by just some of the excerpts that were revealed, you know especially in those last lines. I will never forget what happened to me and I will make sure that they will suffer. She was getting that confidence to tell her mom, to tell an adult what took place. And they feared that. They were concerned. So she was brave in my mind. She was brave. And I do encourage you, if you have experienced sexual assault, there is no minimization of it. If it wasn't rape, if you were touched, that is still assault. Nobody is allowed to touch you without your consent. There is help available. You can talk to someone. You can get help. So I want to extend my condolences to Candace's mother and her family and her friends. I know Michael, it let this particular situation with his friend Candace left an impression on his life and her best friend Yasmin Howard so I extend my condolences to you let's get into our opinions about the Carly Russell story all right y'all let's get into this Carly Russell segment of our show If you have stuck with me thus far, you know I love you. 
you know I love you. You're the real MVP. Um, but I want to go ahead and talk about the poll, the results of the poll, and then encourage you to go and vote in it if you have not. Okay, because this is still running. It doesn't expire until next Thursday. So I'm giving y'all all the time because that's how much I want to hear from you. Okay. So if you listen to us on any other podcast platform, head on over to Spotify. That is where you can vote in our poll. FYI, that is where you can tell us what you think about the episode. Every episode, we ask a question. It might be a general ep- like question about how you feel about the episode that we just covered, or it may be a specific question about the episode that you listen to. But either way, we want to encourage you to make your voice be heard because I love hearing from y'all. Real talk. But the poll, the question that we asked, in case you did not participate and you were curious about the the answers that you could pull from, let me go ahead and review that. What are your thoughts on Carly Russell? That was the question I asked. And the options were, I knew she was lying. I thought it was true. She should go to jail. Get her some help. Damages the true stories. No comment. 34% of you said, get her some help. 20% of you said, I knew she was lying. And the third most popular answer was damages the true stories coming in at 17%. All right. So what does Steph think, if you care? Honestly, I agree with the most popular answers. But for me, this story is very damaging to a person who is doing a podcast about true crime in the Black community. Why? Because our stories rarely, barely, hardly ever get covered by mainstream media. Hence why me and MD do what we do here on our show. So when there's a story that comes out and you hear about a missing black person and there's so many missing black women. I'm sorry, a missing, there are so many missing black women and our stories go untold. And so you hear, I heard about this story and you may wonder why we didn't immediately post about Carly Russell on our Instagram page, Facebook page, our our media platforms. We didn't. And here's the reason why, because when I heard this story, I, something sounded off. I can't say that I knew she was lying, like, right off the bat. And for those of you who did, y'all need to come read my future because y'all got some intuition. But I really kind of felt like something was off about the story. So this story moved very fast. It went viral quick, and it moved fast. And the facts about the case started to come out almost daily. So within the week, you were like, you knew most about the case if you were watching it, right? So as I started to hear more facts, I was like, something seems off. Just a baby walking down the highway and nobody else calls it in, nobody else sees it. You were the only one? That seems a little odd. But at the same time, I was thinking, well, you know, these sex traffickers are getting kind of, you know, crafty about how they're trying to lure women in and things like that. So that didn't sound too unbelievable, right? But in the totality of this case, I really felt like, are you even serious? Like, 
for us to get on here every week and talk about the missing and we have covered many stories about the missing in season four of our podcast we talk about the missing we talk about why you know they've gone missing how the unanswered questions and the no peace and the 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 they they get no closure and to hear about a story where finally one of our stories go viral very quickly and to hear that there it was just a farce you were just lying it it it's it's hurtful it's hurtful to our community and you're only doing your people a disservice you know what i'm saying and so for me it's very frustrating this case although i laugh about it and you know we make light of it and we have and the memes are funny but truly if you really love true crime if you really want to see victims get the justice they deserve this is a slap in the face and so overall i feel very frustrated by this carly russell situation and you know if you don't know she recently turned herself in the attorney general said he wanted to press charges he did she's out on bail right now so this is the ever-evolving story we'll circle back around once it gets to like a finishing point but i know a lot of people was like get her some help yeah if you are there has to be there might be let me say that there might be something mentally wrong with you but i think mental illness is now a buzzword that's overused and people gaslight that word and it is a real problem and so i hate for people to be throwing around mental illness you one would think she would be mentally ill to do such a huge hoax like this but i think it's not just get her some help like no you need to suffer some real life consequences that would deter you and anybody else who might think like you from doing something like this and so i'm not we can debate all day about what those consequences should be i know there's a lot of like chatter about should she face consequences you know um people of different races get away with this all the time you know is this is should she she should you do not get to waste the state's resources in time because one day you woke up and you decided you wanted to 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 take a break and disappear off the face of the earth and lie about everything. So whether that's probation, you going to seek mental health and probation and community service, whether that's you going and doing some jail time, there's consequences. For every action, there is a reaction, Ms. Carly Russell as I'm sure you're now figuring out. It's just a shame, y'all. So with all that being said, please, please, please let me know what you think about this episode. Let me know what you think about this Carly Russell situation. We'll circle back around because we have to. Like, we have to circle back around in this case. Um, Yeah, so we'll be back next week. Make sure you share if you care. Rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform we appreciate it we love y'all so much here on murder in the black and we hope that y'all feel the love um thanks for participating i think last week's episode got more feedback in the question that i asked y'all last week we got so much feedback on that episode thank you so much make sure you participate make sure you tell us what you think i love hearing from y'all like i never 
don't like hearing from y'all. I always love it. And yes, you can send me Instagram messages and I'm going to reply because ain't nobody Hollywood over here. We super humble. I love reading messages from y'all. I love the case suggestions. Love, love, love. So share if you care. We will be back next week. Until next time, friends, this is Murder in the Black.